0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, right, good morning, America. This is America. and Jack. Good morning and glad that we have something to web I have a true patriot as my guest this morning, uh, Gen- Brigadier General Steve Blanton. Uh, he started his military career as a young lieutenant in Vietnam flying uh, Army helicopters something like 300 combat missions, and 31 years later, that young lieutenant retired as a Brigadier General. General Blanton, welcome to the program, sir. Uh, Pete, thank you so much, and
2: it's my honor to be with you this morning. And and Let me say up front that, uh, Pete, I appreciate what you do for all veterans. I'm very familiar with your work for a number of years uh, telling veteran stories, and I know that I can speak for many, or really for all of our veterans. We appreciate what you do for us. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Steve. It's been an honor to do this. Uh, uh, our veterans need a voice, and I'm um, just one avenue that they can, they can use. Uh, I know you've done your part, and, and we've got to keep up the, 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 the talk, Steve, because uh, in our troubled times these days, the military may once again become the target. of uh, Certain yes. people don't want to see that. done. Yes, all right, let's Absolutely. start this off. Uh, you come from a military family, so tell me a little bit about your growing up years in Atlanta. Okay, Pete. Uh, of course, I was born in
2: 1948. I was a, I was a uh, baby boomer and uh, born at Grady Hospital in August of 48. I had a very early interest in the military, Pete. My, my father and uh, later on, as I got to know my father-in-law as well, they were both World War II veterans So both navy veterans served in the south pacific my uh two older brothers uh were both in the marine corps in the early
0: 50s they missed korea they
2: were in post korea uh actually uh on my mother's side of the family i had an uncle Alfred bell who was in the marine corps and he was killed in action on a little oh. island in the south pacific just off new zealand uh So we have a a rich history in my family of uh, military service and honoring our military, and so I just had an early interest in it. Uh, My uh, brother Robert, who was one of those two brothers that served in the Marine Corps, he he was in uh, high school ROTC at West Coast High School. He was on the rifle team, and and that perked my interest even more. And So when I started uh, high school, I couldn't wait to get to high school ROTC. As soon as I became eligible as a 10th grade student, I enrolled in high school ROTC, and that's the first time I pulled on a uniform, Pete, which I guess was back in 1963-64.
1: I I agree with that, Steve. I took ROTC, too, and even took it in college. uh, That that's a great place for, for kids to get a good start in life. I know when I make presentations... At middle schools or high schools, even on the days that it's not dress day for the ROTC cadets, I know the ones that are in ROTC. They they come up to me, and they're they're, uh, well-dressed. The mannerisms reflect that of ROTC. It's yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir. uh, the other kids are fine. Some of the boys can't shake my hands because they're they holding their pants up. But uh, these kids in ROTC, they they are sharp and they are they yeah. are. It's good for them, don't you think so, Steve? Absolutely.
2: Uh, like you say, whether they're in uniform or not, they all stand a little taller. They all hold their shoulders back a little bit more, and uh, and they do uh, exhume that uh, that military discipline, uh, you know. And it's a great program. I. Like I say, I enrolled just as soon as I was eligible back then, and uh, I was I was a member of the color guard uh, oh. in High School T.C. Now, now, I have an amusing story about that if, if you got time to hear it. Sure.
1: But, sure. Go
2: ahead. Okay. Uh, I had been uh, enrolled, and we had uh, worn our uniforms a couple of times. You know, there were designated days when you wore uniforms, and so it was announced we were going to have a best-dressed cadet competition. And man, I was just determined I was going to win that now. I, I was raised uh, in a very uh, meager uh, family, didn't have a lot, so we couldn't afford to send my uniform to the laundry, so my mother, she uh, uh, starched and pressed those uniforms, I stitched <laughs> those shoes, I mean, I, I took the brass, over that brass, and I mean, I was standing tall on the morning that I was getting ready to leave to go to school, and that day was to be the competition for Best Dressed Cadet. Just as I was leaving, my mother said, wait just a minute, come here. I said, what is it, Mom? She said, I, you need to take this. And she handed me a fresh folded white handkerchief. She said, put this in your rear pocket and button the pocket. I said, I don't need that, Mother. She said, take it, you might need it. So I put it in my pocket. Well, make a long story short, we had the competition that afternoon, and I was chosen from my platoon, and then there were uh, the company competition. I was chosen from the company. And then, as I recall, there were about four of us that were finalists, and they drilled us and, and drilled us and answered, uh, asked us all sorts of questions about chain of command and military history and so on and so forth. And it got down to two of us. There were just two left, and they did not decide which one to choose. And So one of the uh, cadet colonels, he said, to the other one, he said, I believe we're just going to have to uh, declare a tie. And one of the other uh, uh, cadet officers said, Sir, wait just a minute. He said, Do either of you have a clean pressed, white handkerchief in your pocket? And not. I had a big smile that broke out on my face like a mule leaf. I said, yes, sir, I have one. And so I was the best dressed to I wore that shoulder ribbon proudly.
1: <laughs> well, I've heard about winning by a skin of your teeth. I've never heard about winning by a handkerchief. That's a great Well, I tell you, that just proves that my mother, she
2: never served in the military, but she knew a thing or two, you know. <laughs>
1: I love that. You mentioned uh, one of your relatives uh, died as a United States Marine in yeah. one of the islands in the Pacific. Right. Uh, Steve, I'm working on a book about the South Pacific uh, during World War II. It's okay. called In the Middle of Nowhere. Wow. And, yeah, we had so many young men, uh, Marines, Army, it doesn't matter, uh, pilots went down, Um that are still not recovered. There, there are still boys among the MIA, the missing in action, right. who may never be recovered because they were on islands that people never heard about. Exactly. And, and, and what years? All right, I'll tell you what. Now, let's get you out of high school, and let's get up to North Georgia College in Dahlonega. Uh, you right. you up there, and that is a uh, uh, considered a military college, is it not? It is
2: a military college, okay. and uh, it still, still retains the distinction uh, of being designated as a, one of the few military colleges in the United States, even though they uh, uh, are much bigger now. And the Corps of Cadets is a very small part of the college, well, the university now, but it's yep. still a military college.
1: <laughs> huh. A- absolutely. I know this is entirely off the subject, but I have been up to North uh, Georgia College uh, many times. I love that little town up there. Oh, uh, it's awesome. Uh, my w- dearly parted wife and I were up there uh, one weekend, and we were in a restaurant, and one of the girls was a senior at uh, North Georgia College, and cute girl and personality plus. And she said, you know how you tell a freshman girl, from a senior girl, don't you? I said, "No, I have no idea." She said, "Well, it's so mountainous up here that senior girls have better developed legs."
2: <laughs> oh, okay, I uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's,
1: uh, it's it's right there at the Blue Ridge Mountains, and uh, it's just gorgeous up there, Steve. I tell you, it's a uh,
2: it it, you know, it is Pete, and and I just I fell in love with that little town and that campus the first time I ever saw it. Though. Give you a little background. Uh, one of my dear boyhood friends, Chris Walker, his folks uh, had a campsite uh, out near the Ranger Camp, which is, as you know, is, is near Dahlonegan, and right. they owned some property out there along a creek, and they intended to build a cabin and whatnot, never did, but nevertheless, here's the story, we would we would go up there for a weekend, I'd go with them, and uh, Chris and I, we would romp and play in the woods and all, but we would pass through the little town of and right Right next to the campus of course and i would see those cadets walking tall and proud in their uniforms and i was just enamored with that as a young boy and uh, never at the time had any idea that some years later i would be one of those cadets at north georgia college but uh, i i truly ch- I cherish my four years at north georgia uh, and sure. you know all of didn't realize it at the time i was. I was receiving some very good uh, training that would uh, stand me in good stead for many, many years.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Great college up there. I know uh, you guys lost a lot of graduates uh, over in Vietnam, did you not? Absolutely.
2: We did, Pete. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, my senior year, uh, my my wife, we were not married at the time, but we were engaged, and she... uh, was living off campus and sharing a uh, trailer with two other co-eds, and uh, she was doing her student teaching at London County High School, and one of the uh, young ladies that she was rooming with, uh, her husband, had graduated a year earlier and was now serving, in, or maybe two years earlier, than that, and he was then serving in Vietnam as a Huey helicopter pilot. And I will never forget, and she will never forget tonight, that they heard a knock on the door late one night and opened the door and there was an officer standing in class A's and a chaplain along with him in class A's Mm -hmm. to uh, tell Peggy that her husband had been uh, shot down and was declared as missing in action. They were declared declared as an MIA and that was uh, uh, First Lieutenant Robert Ray Alba. I believe you are familiar with that story somewhat. Well,
1: yeah. So sad. So sad. Very Very yeah, uh, Steve, uh, you, uh, the, you, you're talking about the um, training facility up there. That's uh, for the folks that are listening. That's isn't that near Tecola or in Ticola? Uh
2: You mean the ranger camp? Yeah, uh, the ranger camp is actually closer to Delonga. Uh, oh. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I, in
1: fact, they have a Delanoja address,
2: I believe, but it's 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 out from you know, nestled nestled in the,
1: the foothills
2: of the Appalachian Mountains. There.
1: Okay. Very good. Now up at Tacoma, that's a, a Army a paratrooper from from World War II camp, right? It's, I'm not familiar with that one,
2: Pete, but
1: I think you're right. Yes. Yeah, and there's a, a mountain up there that a lot of people. Uh, climb or run up, and I looked at it, and I was going to try it one day. And after I saw it, I said, "Nope, too old for that." Too old for
2: that. I hear you. I hear you. Well, there in Delongo, uh, we have uh, we have a mountain or two there, and uh, the one that sure. just dominates and overlooks the campus is Crown Mountain. And uh, uh, back in the day, we used to uh, have a have a big race every spring. Uh, in conjunction with uh, like a week long field day of activities, competition, and all, and the and the uh, final event was the race up Crown Mountain. and a three mile race up mountain and down the other side back on the campus. Uh, <laughs> think that now, Steve? That's
1: uh,
2: that
1: Think you could do that now?
2: Well, no, sir. I I, I might be able to, I might be able to run around the dinner table, but. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I could run around Crown Mountain again, but back back in the day, I was a pretty decent runner and actually was able to win that race uh, three
3: times.
1: So. Very we're going to have to go to our first break, Steve, but after that, uh, we're going to get you over to the ROTC Advanced Camp at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, so stand by, okay?
2: Sounds good. Thank you, Pete.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend. That needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery.
1: Okay, we're back with you folks. We uh, are interviewing Brigadier General Steve Blanton today, uh, one of my brothers from Vietnam and and a 31-year service uh, veteran. Uh, Steve, let's get you to the ROTC Advanced Camp at at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Tell me about that.
2: Yes, sir, Pete. Uh, As you probably know, uh, college ROTC students who choose to sign a military contract and eventually become commissioned second lieutenants in the United States Army, they have a requirement between their junior and senior year to attend what's called Advanced ROTC Summer Camp. Now, this used to be held at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, back in my day. Uh, In recent years, I think they've been holding it at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, and other locations. But uh, summer of 1969, I loaded up and left. Home for six weeks during the summer to attend that uh, advanced camp at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Now, what that consists of, Pete, is, is you get all your soldier skills that uh, someone who would enlist in the army, an enlisted man, would receive during their basic training. You receive all your soldier skills uh, and some small unit training and tactics and things of that nature, and then some leadership training on the uh, platoon and company levels and so it was quite an intense camp uh you know uh, we would uh, have a uh, revelry at uh, you know four thirty-five every morning and uh we'd put in those 12 14 hour days and by the time we hit the rack uh, around you know five six o'clock that evening we were pretty well washed up <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite quite intense
1: uh very good um when you got out, when you graduated from North Georgia College, you got a commission as a second lieutenant. Is that correct? That's right. I received my commission. Uh, I believe it was May thirtieth of nineteen seventy. Uh, let me back up a, just
2: a moment. To tell you one quick story about that uh, camp that summer at Fort Bragg. We got time to do that. Uh, we do. My bunk mate was a young man by the name of Ray Barbie. He was from Clemson University. Now, back in that day, Clemson was known as a pretty uh, pretty good party school. And uh, Ray was a sharp guy, but he didn't know much about the military.
3: And I took him
2: under my wing, and I, I showed him everything that I knew. I taught him how to shine his boots, make his military corners on his bunk. I helped him with uh, the disassembly and assembly of the, uh, the old, uh, the old uh, M14 rifle and uh, helped him every step of the way with everything we had to do. Now, they kept points on all the cadets, and we had a 40-man platoon. At the end of summer camp, I was proud that I was uh, finished as the second-place cadet in that platoon. Uh, wow. Guess who finished first? You don't Ray Hart. Ray Hart. <laughs> was first. Uh, that was sort of the first indication or one of the first indications. That maybe I had a career as a teacher of some sorts. <laughs>
1: so. <laughs> and uh, late in your life and, and during the military days, you absolutely were a teacher. Let's get back to, uh, I don't think uh, a lot of people know this about the RLTC program up in Dahlonega, but right. you were flight training up there, did you not? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I was part, I was privileged to be part
2: of a uh, pilot program, no pun intended, but the, uh, the Army at that time introduced a program called ROTC Flight Training, and, and this was like a dream come true for a young man who had always dreamed about flying. Uh, we registered for a class called ROTC Flight Training, received college credit, and also received 40 hours of flight time and Ground school and flight school, and when we came out
3: uh,
2: on the other end, we wound up with our uh, our pilots' license and uh, and a grade for the class. Just it was just a a dream come true. Uh, Got a little amusing story I'll share with you. You're familiar with this story, Uh, and I hope that's not interrupting us. I have a call coming in which I'll ignore. Okay, uh, here's here's what happened. I had about 10 hours, uh, and I had soloed, and we're flying a little Cessna 150, so I was out solo one day uh, by myself, and I had picked out a uh, cow pasture to practice uh, setting
0: up the salt field landings. Now, the procedure was to be that you didn't actually
2: land. You aborted the landing uh, at the last moment, but the Uh, I had shot two or three practice approaches to this field, and I had decided I had time to do one more, so I
3: was coming in, and I uh, had uh,
2: slowed my airspeed to about 40 to 50 knots had milked in full flaps, and and then when you get about 100 feet off the ground, you abort the landing, you uh, flip your flaps to go back up, and you give it full uh, throttle, and Full mixture rich. Now there's a red knob which is the mixture knob, and you're supposed to push that all the way in, which gives you full mixture rich fuel. Well, I milked the flaps up, I gave it full throttle, and I pulled the mixture <laughs> knob. Uh, well, that's not what you're supposed to do. So I'm climbing out. Well, now there's, a, there's an amount of fuel in the fuel line, so the engine won't cut off instantly. But then it began to cough. And I realized what I had done. Well, I was only about uh, maybe 300 feet above the ground. And my
1: engine stopped.
2: And and the prop is uh, just sitting still in front of me. It was real quiet up there. And I knew I didn't have time to reclaim. I realized what I had done. So I just banked a hard bank left and uh, came in over the old farmer's barn. Farm. He was out there doing something with his. Pay or whatever, and I I did a soft field landing, and uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty rough field. And so I realized what I'd done. I got out and checked the aircraft, made sure I didn't have any uh, struts broken or something like that, and and I cranked up my taxi and getting in position to soft field takeoff. And all of a sudden, I hear on the radio, Blanton, what in the blankety blank blank are you doing down there? Well, the other instructor was flying over with a student. And saw me down there, and I didn't know what to say. So, I said, well, uh, Mister Otter, I just had a little engine problem. I landed. I checked things out, and it's, it's going. Everything's fine. I'm going to take off. He said, "No, you're not. You shut down." Mister Steele will be there in a few minutes. Uh, Mister Steele was my instructor. He was an old World War Two pilot. P.D. flew over the hump in China, and. Uh, and uh, about 30 minutes later, he walked up, and I and I I started begging apologies right away. I said, Mr. Stubb, you're not going to believe what I did. I'm so sorry. He said, you're not going to believe what I did. He said, you pulled out the mixture dog, didn't you? I said, yes. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, put his arm around me. He said, don't worry about it. He said, now you know you can do a horse landing if you ever have to. I
1: <laughs> uh, think When I did your story, I I titled it, Engine Trouble, Sir. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It there was
2: engine trouble between the ears, Pete. Is what it was.
1: <laughs> the, uh, you, uh, when you signed uh, uh, your, for your commission in the army, what were you paid per month?
2: Oh my goodness, Pete! Uh,
1: the best I
2: can recall uh, at that time, the base pay for second lieutenant now, that was, it was considerably higher than a, a private E one, but it wasn't anything great. Either. Somewhere around two hundred and seventy-six dollars a month. That was the place to pay.
1: Wow! Thought maybe thought you were rich, right?
2: I'm telling you, man, I was rolling in the dough. You know, newly married and <laughs> brand, new, brand new second lieutenant, and I was on top of the world.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's get to your. Uh, You're in, your in the army. You're a second uh, lieutenant. Uh, where did you go for your basic officer training course? Pete, I went to Fort Useless, Virginia. Now, uh, that's that's uh, more commonly known as Fort
2: Eustis, Virginia. <laughs> that's that's Newport News, Virginia, is a tidewater area right there on the James River. And that's uh, back in that day, that's where the transportation school was. I had uh, made my branch selections at North Georgia. We were able to put down three choices and. Uh, I don't remember my other two choices, but I put transportation as my first choice, thinking that that would uh, blend well with aviation. You know, back then, we didn't have an aviation branch. And uh, so I I received uh, my first choice, uh, transportation. So we started our, I think it was about a 13-week course. Of course, uh, we covered all facets of transportation, land, sea, and air. And I developed some great friendships right then. And uh, as you know, the military is like a one one big, uh, uh, one big family, you know. And uh, uh, three of my dearest friends who I've kept in touch with all these years, uh, John Hirsch, who lives in South Dakota, who's a retired colonel. Tom Arnold lives in Cooker, Oklahoma, out in the panhandle. He's a retired lieutenant colonel. And Gary King lives in Ottawa, North Carolina, and we, we developed three close friendships uh, with those guys back then, and we kept in touch all these years.
1: Outstanding. Okay, tell us a little bit about, we got about two minutes before a break, uh, flight school in Texas, and then you went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Tell us a little bit about your flight school.
2: Wow, I don't think I can cover that in two minutes, but I'm going to tell you what, uh, Learning how to hover a TH fifty five helicopter was the most difficult thing I ever had to do. It was sorta of like trying to stand on a basketball and dry off with a towel without falling off. <laughs> um, it was it was in fact, most guys that wash out of flight school wash out because they can't find what's called the hover But If you can't hover, you can't fly a helicopter. And uh, I've told people over the years that you can do a side hill landing in a TH-55 helicopter. You can fly anything. (laughs) Uh, A TH-55, you barely got room to sit with your instructor. And by the way, he was about 50 pounds heavier than me. So when we were hovering, we were actually tilted to his side. (laughs) Uh, We called it the Mattel Messerschmitt. But then when we got to Fort... Rucker, we got into the Cadillac of helicopters at that time, which was the UH-1 Huey. Yes, and sir. What what a what an awesome awesome flying machine that was and still is. Hmm.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, okay, I tell you what, we're going to our second break, Steve. When we come back, we'll briefly discover. Uh, uh, talk about the Hunter. Army Airfield in Savannah where you went to uh, Cobra. Okay, so we'll be right back after our second break. Okay, we are back with uh, Brigadier General Steve Blatton. Uh, Steve, let's get to your Cobra gunship school in Savannah, and then we'll move over to Fort uh, Useless, Virginia. Go ahead. Steve? Uh Uh-oh. Steve, you still with me? All right. Yeah,
2: hey,
1: Steve. Okay, that's fine. That's uh, yeah. to get you into uh, your Cobra. I had to gun. step hair. out and comb my hair there, a minute. <laughs> yeah, right. You and me combing hair that—that's a—that's a photo op right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Cobra, Cobra School in Savannah, and then we'll move over to uh, uh, Fort Eustis, Virginia. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Cobra School was
2: a, was an awesome thing. Uh, I, I referred to the uh, Huey earlier as the Cadillac. And if the Huey was the Cadillac, then the Cobra was the Corvette. And, <laughs> man, I couldn't wait to get behind the controls of one of those flying machines. Uh, I mean, you know, it, now you got to understand, uh, helicopter pilots, like most pilots, are a little bit, uh, well, just a little bit uh, uh, proud. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, they always think that they're just a cut above some of the risk. And so... The uh the, the snake pilots were a breed of their own. And uh that's what we refer to as a cobra pilot, a snake pilot. Uh it was a, it was an awesome thing, We would uh, we would fly from uh Hunter Army Airfield there in Savannah down to Fort Stewart to do our shooting on the ranges. And uh what you had was on the on the two wings you had uh, rocket pods, 2.57 inch rockets. You had a grenade launcher under the nose and a 40 millimeter cannon. And when you would do your gun runs uh, on the range, you would uh, come in at about 2,000 feet above ground. You would slow your airspeed to about 50 knots, and then you would dump the nose over. now wasn't as sophisticated as uh, some of these things are flying nowadays. Uh, The Apache has all this sophisticated uh, gun sighting and stuff. But what you did back then in order to hit your target, you pointed the helicopter at your target. And so you would dump the nose over and go into your dive and you would punch your rockets off and you would Again your pull out now by the time you started your pull out you were up to about hundred and eighty knots and you would pull out at about five hundred feet above ground level. And it was an awesome thing. It was an awesome thing. It was a very, very quick school, Pete. Four weeks, man. And uh, boy they uh, they really uh, they really crammed it into us. you uh, know, our plate was full for four weeks.
1: I'll bet you. I bet you. Uh, what about Virginia? What, what'd you do over there? Okay, after we uh, finished Cobra's
2: transition, then we went back to Fort Eustis, Virginia for AMOG, that's Aircraft Maintenance Officer course. Now, that was quite an extensive course. We uh, we took the Huey helicopter primarily and other helicopter systems as well, and we studied each system, avionics, uh, hydraulics, uh, flight controls, uh, the engine and drivetrain, the rotor system, uh, we broke it down. We studied every intricacy of that helicopter because when we, were, when we graduated, we were going to be certified aircraft maintenance officers and test pilots. Wow! So it was quite an intensive school. Uh, I, I, I told you that hovering a TH-13 was the most difficult thing I'd ever done. I'm going to tell you what, some of this was uh, right up there with regard to uh, testing my brain and, uh <laughs>
1: you were uh, took a vacation in Southeast Asia right compliments of Uncle Sam all expenses
2: paid yes uh,
3: we
2: we 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 took off out of uh, out of Oakland uh, and uh, you know interesting enough in August of 72 you know what was going on the war was winding down dramatically and uh, we actually had people that were pulled out of line and taken off the flight manifest because their orders had got changed at the last moment. Huh. None none of us helicopter pilots were in that category. We went. We went. They, they still wanted helicopter pilots. And so, uh, I'll never forget, uh, that flight over, uh, now, you know, a bunch of young lieutenants and, you know, sprinkling of captains and, uh, mostly young guys. (laughs) And this is kind of a sidebar story. Uh, At that time, the airline, now this was a contract flight. I think it was Braniff Airlines. And at that time, the airlines had loosened their requirements regarding uh, stewardesses. And so we were all looking forward to having these nice young ladies waiting on us. Well, in fact, they were probably just in their 30s or early 40s. We thought they were grandmas. And (laughs) so (laughs) we were all disappointed. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, you uh, Your base in Nam was Kanto, down in the Mekong Delta. Take, take, take it away here, Steve.
2: Yes, we, we, we arrived in Kanto after, after about a week in uh, Saigon. Uh, we had processed through camp after received our orders and uh, stayed with a good friend of mine, David Thady, in Kanto for about a week. And then we finally found our way down into... Uh, Canto. I walked into the orderly room, and I laid my orders on the desk in front of the clerk, and he looked at them, and he looked at me, and he says, well, Lieutenant, we didn't know you were coming. And I, thought to my, I thought to myself, well, you know what? I could have stayed in Canto, I mean, in the Sargon, and
3: I could have ghosted the whole time. <laughs> I, didn't even show up. I think
2: they would have caught up with me. But, uh, my company commander was a great guy. We talked about him before, uh, beat, uh, Jerry Childers, and yeah. uh, he was on his third tour at that time. Jerry hmm. uh, was quite a character. He he flew the second Cobra helicopter that ever came off the assembly line at the Bell helicopter plant in Texas. Wow. And uh, he, he stood up the first Combat support missions. Uh, we flew missions into Cambodia uh, on a regular basis. We flew missions all over the the Nikon Delta area. Uh, had a number of uh, situations that I guess were close encounters, but you know everybody has some of those.
1: But, uh, tell us about that time. Uh, I think it had to do with the B fifty two strike, but. Um you were calling well, in coordinates for a B-52 strike or something like that tell us yeah, about that yeah, uh,
2: Pete I think you may be referring to one of the Cambodia missions and we were flying and we had just crossed into Cambodia Now we flew at 2,000 feet above ground that gets you out of small arms fire and you're not high enough so they can track you for a long distance with bigger guns and so we had just crossed into Cambodia it was a very overcast foggy day we had a a U.S. colonel in our back seat, and uh, we were on our way to Phnom Penh, capital, on the land at the International airport. So uh, the colonel came over the intercom and he says, uh, hey, uh, how about do a 180? I think I saw something. So we did a 180 and went back, and sure enough, we started circling, and we could identify along Highway 2 uh, a probably a company size element of Premier Luge. Now, this was the uh, uh, bunch that was ultimately going to overthrow the government and result in killing fields of over 2 million uh, civilians. Yeah. Uh, and so we did, in fact, identify that as a enemy unit. So here we are, one single ship with two M60 uh, machine guns. We can't do much with those guys. So we got on the horn. We called the Navy. We had their uh, we had their uh, frequency, and we dialed them up. Asked for close air support. About ten minutes, they arrived on scene. They're talking to us, circling above. And uh, the Navy pilot he says, uh, "I can't make the target." In other words, he couldn't see the target. And so he says, "We need you to go down and fly down low and drop smoke on the target." And so I came back and I said, you need us to do what? <laughs> and uh, so I looked at the captain I was flying with, him. he looked at me and we said, okay, guess we'll do it. So, uh, captain took control. We go down about 500 feet above the ground. I take a red smoke grenade, lean out the window, pull the
0: pin, and drop
2: it on top of those guys. Now, the whole time, we were taking small arms fire. I mean, <laughs> just hundreds and hundreds of
3: rounds, we can hear it, you know, rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. And so, uh, we uh, pull on out of there pretty
2: quickly. Well, the uh, the Navy A-4 fighter jets, they go in and, and dump their load on those guys. and we go going off to Phnom Penh. And so, we landed in Phnom Penh, and the first thing we did was inspect the aircraft for bullet holes. To my amazement, Pete, we didn't find one
3: bullet hole. Now, I don't know if those guys were shooting blanks
2: or if the Lord had an <laughs> shield around us or if they were just bad, bad marksmen, but uh, it was amazing. And uh, <laughs> uh, kind of kind of the uh, rest of that story is uh found out that the colonel had put myself and the both uh, in for a DFC, uh, Distinguished Flying Cross. Oh. No, and, and so... Uh, when the awards came in, the captain got a DFC, but the lieutenant got downgraded to an air medal with a B for valor. So that's the <laughs> way. That's the way awards work and still do to this day.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. I understand. Also, uh, tell the uh, listeners real, uh, briefly about your time. You got caught uh, in two thunderstorms on the way back to Kanto
2: yes pete we were flying a mission up near uh saigon and it was just what we called an action trash mission we had a had a uh, you know a province advisor that we were flying around with this province chief and uh we were on the way back to canto after dropping them off and uh we could see two thunderheads uh some distance out in front and so we pulled the collective up under our arm and lean the nose forward and got her up to about 120 knots. And we were trying to split those two thunderheads before they came together. We didn't make it. Uh, I mean, we got into a classic thunderstorm. Uh, no visual ground reference at all. Lightning crackling all around us. Uh, now, backing up to flight, school, my flight class had been first flight class to graduate with an IFR ticket instrument flight, route. we we did extensive flying under the hood, and, uh, you know, we were, we were trained to fly on instruments, and so I took over from the one officer I was flying with, he was on instrument training, I took over and I flew, and we were in that suit for probably 10 minutes, felt like 10 hours, but we obviously made it through, and... Uh, When I got to the other side, I think my uniform was soaking wet, not from rain, but from my
1: sweat. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. All right. And uh, uh, this was during the time that the Paris peace talks uh, produced a ceasefire. Uh, Yes. Most advantageous to the communist forces, not us. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the indignity of what our boys went through when they were leaving Vietnam with the Viet Cong and uh, North Vietnamese there.
2: Yes. Uh, well,
1: it's
2: already I think outlined. It, it was quite yeah. an amazing set of circumstances. Now, hey, Steve, I'm going to
1: interrupt you. It's time for, we'll come back to this. Okay, It's time sure. for our next break. Uh, we'll All be right back right with that about the uh, leaving Vietnam. you uh, for standing by. Uh, folks, we'll okay. be right back. All right. The
0: Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number 4, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
1: patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible Okay, we're back with General uh, Brigadier General Steve Blanton. He's telling us about leaving Vietnam. And at this time, that was uh, when the peace accords were signed. We were pulling out of Vietnam, but we were not pulling out with honor, as far as I was concerned. Steve, tell us the story.
2: Well, Pete, uh, I had uh, been transferred, and I was now the maintenance officer of uh, the 18th Corps Aviation Company. And one of the things that we had to do uh, was we had to, we had to get all our equipment ready to turn over to the uh, uh, Vietnamese Army, the Arvin, or either to the VNAP, the Vietnamese Air Force. So we were going to turn all our helicopters over to the VNAP, and our tool kits and whatnot would go with them. Now, we had a number of uh, American companies over there at the time, and uh, I guess I'm past the uh, statute of
3: limitations
2: so I can tell this, uh, Air America, Lear Seager, and things like that. We had a great relationship with them. So I called those guys up and said, come on over to my hangar and we will give you a bunch of stuff. We loaded up brake lays and drill presses and all sorts of things that I, I just wrote off as a combat loss. Couldn't give them the helicopter. man my- base observing uh, withdrawal, and uh, it was very, very, very tough to take.
1: I can imagine. Uh, I know that, uh, I didn't know this, Steve, uh, I read a book recently, it's called "Dereliction of Duty, uh, not wow. about a military, but about Washington, D.C., where uh, when they signed those Paris Peace Accords, uh, they had to account for our POWs in North Vietnam. But we had agreed that they did not have to account for any POWs in South Vietnam, Cambodia, or Laos. I don't know why in the hell they would sign that kind of agreement, but that's what they did. That that that's so that's so sad. And
2: uh, and you know, Pete, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that we left some guys over there, and that's that's one of the things that we just have to deal with. Uh, you know, I I, just, uh, I wrestle that oftentimes because. Uh, in
3: fact, I was designated to uh, be in charge of a maintenance team that would be uh, responsible for the maintenance of aircraft that
2: would be going to pick up POWs at various locations. And uh, that mission got scrubbed. Uh, yep. We never we never did that mission. And uh, I've often wondered how many of those guys were left on
1: uh steve you know i was with intelligence i can tell you uh briefly we, we left some boys over there right so very that, that was a great example of how not to fight a war uh,
2: well yes absolutely i mean there, there were occasions when we would be out on a uh, aerial reconnaissance plotting b-52 strikes and uh, would have a u.s car on the back seat and you know, would be circling overhead. We could clearly see the DC down below. I mean, they weren't, they weren't, <laughs> they didn't have much place to hide down in that part of the country, uh, yeah. down in the Delta. And so, uh, you know, but we would send the request up for the B-52 strike. Well, by the time it went up through the channels and, and, and they came in about 24 hours later to drop their load, uh, they would just uh, tear up uh, terrain because the V.C. had picked
1: up and left. They knew we weren't there sightseeing. Yeah. yeah. know. Kind of uh, well, you know, I was involved in the interdiction of Ho Chi Minh Trail for 18 months and then ended Saigon for another year, but Hogan uh, Laos, we were bombing dirt. You, you can't win a war bombing dirt. Uh, Absolutely. By the, time, by the time our fighters got back to base, uh <clears> the <throat> Workers on the Ho Chi Minh Trail had already gone out there and filled up the holes. The, you know, the yeah. robbers and stuff. Uh, Steve, uh, you've had a great, great career. Uh, you eventually retired as a very general. Tell us a little bit about uh, coming home and uh, what you did uh, with your life uh, in the military and also in, in the civilian line of work.
2: Okay, Pete, uh, of course, we came home the end of March, 73, I came out. We had sixty days to get out the peace treaty agreement, and I came out on day fifty-nine. I actually, uh, I actually landed and arrived back in in the world on twenty-eighth March, nineteen seventy-three, at twenty-two fifteen hours. We stepped onto the soil at San Francisco, and uh, we had stopped in Guam and Hawaii on the way. so I was I was thrilled to be back, and uh, so what I did then was I went back to Fort Eustis after some leave and uh, Became the XO of the Transportation Company, later training off of the Tenth Transportation Battalion. And uh, Pete, I became bored because uh, after Vietnam and after flying combat support missions, uh, flying a desk and, and transportation uh, company and then the Transportation Battalion wasn't very exciting, to and. Uh, so i requested an end uh, early out My active duty uh came to an end on uh, 1 august 74 and i moved back to georgia and i did and started our lives here and she was already a school teacher i wanted to be a teacher and coach which i did for a number of years taught at two different private schools and a couple of different public schools and uh uh, then, uh, as time went along, in March of '83, a good friend of mine,
3: W. A. Ashburn, who uh, was a lieutenant
2: colonel in the Georgia Army Guard, got to talking with me and found out I was
1: an old Georgia
2: graduate, Vietnam veteran, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and he convinced me to come into the Georgia Army National Guard. So, I entered the Georgia Army National Guard in, in March of 1983 as a 34-year-old first lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was a relic, and uh, at that time, I was one of the few National Guard soldiers that had a patch on my right sleeve, a combat patch. Uh, all that's changed since uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the War on Terror. But I uh, had a great career in the Georgia Army National Guard. I was privileged to command at four different levels. I was a company commander as a captain, uh, then later on, commanded a huge maintenance company as a major uh, commanded a uh, S&S battalion as a lieutenant colonel and by the way took an 800-man task force uh, down to the Gulf uh, coast of Mississippi after Katrina hit back in, uh, I believe it was 05. And uh, then later on, toward the end of my career, commanded the 201st Regional Support Group as a colonel and uh, retired as the surface maintenance manager for the Georgia Army National Guard at 14 maintenance. 350 man workforce and we were responsible for maintaining all the ground support equipment vehicles for the George Army National Guard and uh, including the armor vehicles for the 48th uh, Mechanizing Brigade at that time. So uh, when we retired we were bumped up to Brigadier General and I was uh, thankful for that honor and uh, I've just been blessed. The Lord
1: blessed me and my family. We have
2: four grown children. Eleven grandchildren, and hope we have many more years to enjoy life.
1: Uh, me too, Steve. You were very, very active in the church. Is that correct? Yes, sir.
2: Uh, uh, when I was in Vietnam, I might mention this. When I was in Vietnam, I, I was lost. As my ball passed. My pastor would say I was lost as a ball in high grass. back then, uh, as <laughs> I got in the field in Vietnam, I was split hell wide open, but. Uh, had
1: a wife and a lot of family and friends praying for me. so after the birth of our first
2: son, Chris, in 1976, uh, I uh, asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart and save me. And I haven't looked back since. And uh, I've been privileged to serve my church as a treasurer, a deacon, a trustee, Sunday school teacher. And I'm uh, still serving today as a deacon and trustee.
1: So well, blessed. We're blessed. Good job there, General. Listen, I'm, I'm looking over a list of your uh, <clears throat> awards and medals and service ribbons and everything else. Uh, how do you walk around in uniform? These things must weigh about 10 pounds. you got so many of them.
2: Well, Pete, you know, I, I do wear my uniform on occasion, like, uh, you know, for Veterans Day and Memorial Day and Fourth of July. And- sometimes one of the little kids would come and say, what's all that stuff meaning? You know what I tell them? So that just means I was in for a long time. That's
1: all. (laughs) Well, you're a role model these days. I remember uh, when our good buddy um, Grady Mullins uh, finally passed away, World War II combat veteran. Uh, You were one of the pallbearers, and his family was just so honored that you served as a pallbearer. I remember... uh, his wife, Frances, told me, I, I can't believe Grady is, is, well, I do believe that Grady is probably looking down and seeing a brigadier general carrying his casket. And well, he, he
2: if, he, if he was like a lot of those old enlisted guys, he would have probably spit in my eye. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, listen, Pete, that, that was one of the greatest uh, honors that I've ever had uh, was to serve as a pallbearer one of our greatest generation. I I know it was. Uh, They they, they, they were truly the greatest generation, but you know what? We have another greatest generation, and that's the uh, son and daughter of our baby boomers who are uh, really fighting against a lot of different odds nowadays. Yeah. They
1: are. They are. Steve, we're we're just about out of time, but... I know as the National Guard and what's going on today in our cities and everything else, uh, there's a lot of talk about sending the National Guard here or there, uh, bringing things back to order. How well trained is the National Guard for um, that kind of duty? Pete, the National Guard is is just on equal footing
2: with the active opponent. We haven't always been able to say that, but particularly since Desert Shield, Desert Storm in '91. And even before that, it started with the building of the M1 tank and the Bradley fighting vehicle and, and some of the uh, more modernized equipment. Uh, the National Guard used to be, you know, these guys get together once Pete. a month and play cards in armory. That's not, that, that's no longer the case. It hasn't been for a long time. Uh, they are they are well-trained, and the active component units cannot do their mission without the National Guard and the Reserve. Uh Pete, if we got another minute, I'd like to mention my book. Yes, sir. Uh, we we were uh, privileged. In fact, this fellow I'm talking to, Pete Mecca, encouraged me to write this book. Pete, it's we're out of time. Flying Low uh, by Stephen E. Blanton. If you'll go on Google and just put in "Flying Low" by Stephen E. Blanton, it's available on a number of uh, websites: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Uh,
1: Pete, we're out of time. Like that,
2: and. Uh, I'm going to send you an autographed copy of Flying Low, and, and it contains a lot
1: more detail of some of the stories that we've
2: talked about here
1: today. All right. My next book is destined for your uh, live book. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you
3: for listening.